Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Father, um, grace, it continues to astound me that you're a God who asks nothing and gives us everything. You're a God who knows that we can, we can bring you nothing, like a little child bringing a terrible painting, a terrible drawing to their parent. But you're so overjoyed with the little steps that we offer. Thank you that unlike other voices in our lives, there is no condition on your love. There's no limit to your love. And that you're teaching us as a family to not have conditions or limits on one another. It's a hard lesson because our flesh rebels against us. Uh, we've learned through many years um, to be skeptical, to be cynical, to not trust you or to not trust others. Um, but you're opening our hearts to the beauty of your good news that you stepped into time as Jesus of Nazareth that you lived an insane, incredible life, that you died at our hands because you would not lift your hands against us, and that you were raised from the dead because nothing can keep life extinguished. Thank you for the ability to throw big parties and to invite everyone in with no condition other than they're alive and we're alive and you're alive, and that's all a really good thing. Thank you for joy. Thank you for peace. Thank you for the way you never give up on us. Open our hearts and our ears today, Lord. Um, soften our hearts to hear what you might have to say to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, if you're joining us for the first time, we've been in the series this fall that we're uh, titling Sacraments. Sacraments. Uh, that is a word from the Catholic tradition but we're sort of not taking it in its literal Catholic sense, but more the logic behind the concept. And the logic is simply this, that God wants to communicate to us. God wants to communicate to his people. Um, and he can, he communicates himself through all sorts of means. He communicates through people, uh, through institutions, uh, through moments, through seasons, but there is a pattern. When God speaks to us, there's a pattern present. And it's simply this. We're gonna die. <laughs> a part of us is gonna be put to death. There's something in us that's rebellious, that's diseased, that's, that's um, not in alignment, like a, like a broken bone that was never reset. So there's gonna be tremendous pain at first when you reset it, but then it's gonna bring life and abundance uh, like we've never experienced before. And so today, our, our text is gonna come from Galatians, Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, the fifth chapter toward the very end, uh, verses 13 through 25. We're gonna have it on the screen, or if you wanna pull up your smartphones or Bibles, uh, whichever, whichever is best for you. This is Paul writing. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law, is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as you would yourself. 
If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, which is another way of saying lust, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, which is another way of saying excessive partying and the like. I warn you as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the spirit, let us be led by the spirit. The sacrament we're gonna talk about today is holiness. Holiness. Now, that's a very churchy word. I can see it already in your eyes. Don't worry, it was in my eyes too. It's a word and a concept that I've had an aversion to uh, in my life. Because basically what it's talking about, at simplest, is a way of life, right? A philosophy, a, a teaching about, hey, do these things, avoid these things, think this way, don't think this way, and it will lead you into abundant life. And it's, it's a word in the concept I've had an aversion to that I'm gonna explain in due course in this message. But I need to be completely truthful and forthright. It's something that God is opening my heart back toward again. It's something that's softening inside of me and I'm also gonna explain that. Before we jump into this particular passage, I'm gonna do a little word study. I'm gonna take a step back, do a little background. What do we mean when we say holy? What do we mean when we say holiness? Well, in the Hebrew, it comes from the word kodesh, kodesh. You can see it all the time as a noun, a verb, an adjective. Uh, at its simplest, to, to be kodesh is to be set apart, to be different, to be special, right? Different than other things. Um, interestingly, the first thing called kodesh in the biblical story is the Sabbath, the seventh day. So we read in Genesis 2, God blessed the seventh day and he hallowed it, hallowed, he kodeshed it. He set it apart as special. He set it apart as different than the other days because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. So in, in the story that describes, um, that, that frame for the Jewish people, where they come from, uh, the world, the sun, the stars, the moon, creatures, they are called good. God looks at them and says, that is good. And then he creates humans in God's image. And he says, humans are very good. But the Sabbath is Kodesh. The Sabbath is holy. It is set apart. It is worthy. It's different. In the New Testament, the word for holy is Hagias. And if you're familiar uh, with um, ancient history, the Hagia Sophia, uh, the famous cathedral um, in Turkey, uh, the holy wisdom. And it sort of has the same idea, to be set apart, to be different, to be blameless, but it has this connotation also to make special through purification. That 
the way something is set apart, the way something is made different is through it being purified. We read it all the time, most uh, notably in the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus teaches us how to pray, and he says, this is how you pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed. Uh, Hagias. Set apart your name. Make your name holy. Make your name special. Interestingly, also, when you see the word saint in the New Testament, when Paul calls people saints, that's just the word hagias. So a saint is a holy one, a set-apart one, a different one, one who lives a different sort of life, who thinks a different way. Now, obviously, the word holy has evolved. (laughs) The concept has evolved, and we don't really use that word outside of spaces like these. Um, And I wanna talk about the way that holy and holiness has evolved, as well as uh, the way it's caricatured, because I do think it is caricatured. And hear me, caricatures usually have a a, a seed of reality or a seed of truth in them. Usually caricatures come because Christians or or, or others, like we, we fail to live up to what the word actually means. But the caricature of holiness is simply this, and you probably already know it. Okay, these people are set apart, these people are different, but they're different through excessive restrictions, right? You're different because you're like religiously stuffy. You're a moral prude. When when you say to live a holy life, and this is part of my aversion to the word and the concept, I grew up in a, a context that talked about holiness a lot. But if you were to ask me, what does it mean to be holy? I would have told you all the things that I don't do but I couldn't have told you what I actually do. You know what I mean? What does it mean to be a holy Christian? Well, we are against this and this and this and this. Cool, what are you for? Jesus? What does that mean, right? So that's sort of like this this excessive religious um, um, stuffiness. We know what we're against. We don't know what we're for. So the only time you might hear holy, you know, outside of, of of a religious context is when you say that person is holier than thou right? Holier than thou. What does that mean? Well, they're self-righteous. They're a moral prude. They're judgmental. So the way the word holy has evolved is to describe those who are less human, isn't it? Living a less human existence. They've sucked all the fun out of life. Probably one of my favorite poems describing this comes from William Blake called The Garden of Love. And it's, it's a simple and short poem. This is what he says. And I hope I'm interpreting it rightly, but I'm not a poet, so I don't know. He says, I went to the garden of love and saw what I never had seen. A chapel was built in the midst where I used to play on the green. And the gates of this chapel were shut and thou shalt not writ over the door. So I turned to the garden of love that so many sweet flowers bore. And I saw it was filled with graves and tombstones where flowers should be, and priests in black gowns were walking their rounds and binding with briars my joys and desires. Right? That's what we think of when we think of holiness. The caricature of holiness is tombstones instead of flowers. That all is good and flowering and right. And then good old holy religion built a chapel of stone and a garden and wrote, thou shalt not over the door. Isn't that what we think? That's the caricature. And we even see it in the passage we read. We, we feel it in our bones. So when Paul gives this list of different things that are destructive 
to the way of life he's advocating for. He lists them. He goes, the acts of the flesh are visible. We read it obvious in our translation, but it says phanera, means visible, easily seen. The acts of the flesh are easily seen. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, excessive partying, and the like. I warn you as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom. Don't we read it that way in a sense? We impute this self-righteous tone onto Paul. If you do these things, I'm gonna put in the word to God himself that he doesn't let you in, right? That's basically how we read this. But here's what's interesting. When we actually look at the saints, St. Francis of Assisi, when you read a biography on him, Mother Teresa, or when we use that word saint, like I would say, my mother is a saint, and she is. Don't you say a word against Diane Joyce. And you might say, like, that person is a saint. What do we mean when we use that language? I certainly don't mean that they're living a less human life. I certainly don't mean they're self-righteous or morally prudish, right? When I say my mother is a saint. No, I mean that she demonstrates a compassion that I seem to fall short of. She demonstrates a love that awes me. She demonstrates a selfless life that I wish I could emulate, right? So though the lives of the saints, though my mother might demonstrate a life that is characterized by sacrifice, by some sort of refusal to engage in certain ways of life, certain behaviors, certain thought patterns. So there is a certain level of restriction, personal restriction she's undergoing. Rather, there's also a level of joy and peace and gentleness and self-control and goodness about her and about the saints, the holy ones, that seems different. They don't seem bothered by their restrictions. Rather, the caricature of a saint is that they're living a less human life. But when you actually think about it, what makes a saint a saint is that they seem to be more than me. They seem to represent an ideal that I fall short of. They seem to be more human, not less alive, but more alive than I thought possible. So the Franciscan, St. Francis of Assisi, if you ever read a biography on him, when he started, when people started gathering around him, uh, they had three vows. They vowed poverty, took a vow of poverty, no possessions. It took a vow of chastity, no sex. And they took a vow of obedience um, to, to scripture. Seemingly from the outside, very restrictive. Do you know what he called his group at first before someone else called them the Franciscans? Les jongleurs de Dieu, the jesters of God. They were known as the court jesters, the fools of God. There was a joy about them. If you read a biography on St. Francis, you can't get one page without being overcome by the joy that fills this man's life. He calls every creature brother and sister. He, he falls to the earth weeping with ecstasy. Like there's a joy about him, though from the outside, he seems very restrictive. See, what I think it is, is 
true holiness, despite how it's caricatured, despite how we fail to understand it as followers of Jesus um, or, or religious people, wherever you might be spiritually. True holiness at its core is not the refusal of the world, but the recovery of the world. It's not the refusal of humanity, but the recovery of humanity. And that is the paradox of holiness, of choosing a holy way of life. Because if there is a refusal of certain actions, certain behaviors, certain thought patterns, behaviors, actions, thought patterns that feel natural, it's not because doing so makes us less human, it's because if we do it, we're actually less human than we realize. Those things are holding us back from becoming fully human. Or as Paul would say, from fruits of the spirit growing inside of us. Give you an example. One of my colleagues does something to me. This might be an awkward example since I work for a church, but listen, you know, let's go with it. One of my colleagues does something to me. My natural instinct is to respond with anger, right? I can do that. That's what my flesh says to do. That feels natural. Instead, I refuse that. I say no. And instead of responding with anger, not only do I not respond, but I bless this person. I pray and I say, Lord, bless this person. In so doing, I'm forfeiting certain things, things that feel natural, and I'm choosing a different way of life where perhaps something can grow inside of me. That's a small example, but getting at the concept that Paul is trying to explain. If there is a refusal of certain actions, behaviors, or thoughts, it's not because uh, doing so makes us less human, it's because those things are holding us back from becoming fully alive, fully human. I love the way C.S. Lewis describes the saints. He says, the saints' very voices and faces are different from ours, stronger, quieter, happier, more radiant. They begin where most of us leave off. They are, I say, recognizable, but you must know what to look for. They will not be very like the idea of religious people, which you have formed from your general reading, like what William Blake describes those priests. They won't be that. They do not draw attention to themselves. You tend to think that you are being kind to them when they are really being kind to you. They love you more than other humans do, but they need you less. They will usually seem to have lots of time. You will wonder where it comes from. When you have recognized one of them, you will recognize the next one much more easily. And I strongly suspect, but how should I know, that they recognize one another immediately and infallibly across every barrier of color, sex, class, age, and even of creeds. In that way, to become holy is rather like joining a secret society. To put it at the very lowest, it must be great fun. Saints, the holy ones, a holy way of life. It is a set-apart existence. It is different. They live from in a different way. And from the outside, it looks like they are giving up things. It does. But they say those things are holding them back from being fully alive. Fully alive. And what they're finding in the process of giving up certain ways of thinking and acting is an abundance that they didn't experience before. Now the question, if that's what true holiness is, at its core, it's not a refusal of the world, but a recovery of the world. The question is, well, why do we have to recover the world? Why do we have to recover humanity? And in order to understand that, we need to caricature, uh, or, or I should say, um, put in contrast the word with saint, right? Saints and sinners. <laughs> Saints and sinners. So to understand why we have to recover the world, 
We need to understand a concept of sin. And I'm not even gonna try caricaturing that. I'm just gonna go straight to what the biblical understanding of sin is. And we've talked about this before. Sin in the Greek is hamartano. It means to miss the mark, to fail to hit the ideal, to fall short of the ideal. Aristotle used the word hamartano describing an archer who misses the bullseye. The archer, the arrow is supposed to hit the bullseye. That is the ideal. And it doesn't matter if you miss the target entirely or you miss it by a centimeter. You still have missed the mark. You have hamartanoed. So the caricature of a sinner, which is very easy, is a sort of selfish, vile, cruel person. And sure, that is a human that has missed the mark. Do you know another example of a human that has missed the mark? That self-righteous, holier-than-thou saint or I should probably not use saint and just call him a religious person. They also have missed the mark of the true ideal of the human that God has in mind. Both of those are examples of a human that has missed the mark, but it, it's not just human behavior, it's, it's deeper than that. So here's an example, personal example, might make it a little more real. My face is an example of sin, it is. My face, I was born without a left ear, I was born with my left jaw missing, a shorthand way of describing my face is to say it's sin. Now, I didn't make a decision for this. And you're like, what are you talking about? Well, I look out at you and you all have left ears. You all have left jaws that connect. You all don't have scars like mine. And no, you know, woe is me or self-pity or anything. Quite objectively, I can tell that there is an ideal for a face. Faces are supposed to be complete. Mine is not that. The biblical way to describe a face that has missed the mark, has missed the ideal, though from no fault on my own, is sin. That's the way we describe it. Sin is the shorthand word for all the ways that the cosmic, physical, psychological, societal, structural, international, institutional stuff falls short of a perceived ideal. And I'm sure I left out some other qualifiers, but that's all I could think of. It falls short of a perceived ideal, whether my face, individual destructive decisions or structural realities that inhibit us, that inhibit human flourishing. The shorthand way for that is sin. Now what's so fascinating when we talk about why we have to recover the world is not that it falls short, but that we all can recognize it falls short. We all have in our hearts and minds this idea that it shouldn't fall short. We have this idea of the ideal. Would anyone say that my face hits the ideal for faces? Now you might be kind and say yes, but I would call you a liar. Because I know, I can see it. My face, if Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, my face is the visible image of invisible sin because I can quite clearly see that it misses the mark. Would anyone say that our country is hitting the ideal of how countries should flourish, how countries should operate? No. Would anyone say that your marriage is firing on all cylinders? You are hitting the ideal of what a marriage should look like. If you are, please come tell me what your secret is. Would anyone say your life is exactly where you want it to be? that there's not one thing where you're like, ah, if I could just be better in this. So what that demonstrates is all of us, whether you call yourself 
a follower of Jesus or not, whether you call yourself religious or not, all of us have in our hearts this thought that there is an ideal that we're all missing. There is a perceived ideal that is complete wholeness, complete abundance, total completeness, perfect beauty, perfect love, perfect goodness. We have a shorthand for that as well. We say that's God. That's God. That's the one from whom all life has emerged. The one who is perfect goodness. The one who is perfect love, perfect sacrifice, perfect beauty, whole, complete, lacking nothing. That is the ideal. And when God in Genesis 1 talks about making us, we're told God made humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then later on, we're told he placed eternity into our hearts. That's all a way of saying the reason why we're able to recognize that things are missing the mark, the reason why we live in such a way that is trying to close the gap, that is trying to reach the ideal is because we are made in the image of the whole one, the complete one, the one who lacks nothing. And we feel this dissonance that says there's something wrong. Sin is the way we talk about the gap between God and where I am, where the world is. Sin is the shorthand way we talk about the gap between perfect goodness, perfect love, perfect joy, and where everyone else is. Or I love this, one, one scholar writes, every sin is the distortion of an energy breathed into us. An energy which, if not thus distorted, would have blossomed into one of those holy acts whereof God did it and I did it are both true descriptions. We poison the wine as he decants it into us. Isn't that such a good image? We poison the wine as he decants it into us. We murder a melody. He would play with us as the instrument. We caricature the self-portrait he would paint. Hence, all sin, whatever else it is, is sacrilege. <laughs> all sin is a desecration of the holy. It's a desecration of the complete. So when we describe that holy person, when we say my mother is a saint, and, we're, and we really think it through, and what I'm saying is she seems to be more human than me. She has characteristics about her life that I want. What I'm really saying is she's closer to the ideal than I am, right? She's closer to complete goodness, complete rightness, to complete abundance than me. Or Paul in his passage, how he puts it, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not able to do whatever you want. The spirit is leading us to the ideal, but the flesh marred by fallenness prohibits us from achieving the ideal. Example, when someone does something to me and my first instinct is to curse them. My first instinct is to respond with anger. That's my flesh saying, do this. But the Spirit says, no, don't. Bless. Hold back and bless. And in so doing, I won't be destructive, but be building up. So what is the ideal? <clears throat> what, is, 
pure holiness, and I just sort of alluded to it. Paul says after that, for the entire law, everything, every excessive restriction, you look at the people of Israel or you look at us, you say, this seems arbitrary and weird. Everything is building up to one summation, one point. The entire law is fulfilled in this one command. Love your neighbor as you would yourself. That is God. God is the complete one who loves others the way he would love himself. He does not destroy. He does not tear down. He builds up. And again, we need to define love. Love doesn't mean sort of this, this you know, vague tolerance, which can be a fear, right? Love isn't, love isn't the parent um, enabling their child to do destructive things. Love says, I will always be here, but I won't enable you to destroy yourself. We need to define what love is. But love says, I will go unto death for you. I will hold back none of my resources for you. You are mine. That's why my mother is a saint. Because I see in her life the embodiment of the principle, you will love your neighbor as you would yourself. That's why God is described as agape. Because in his story, it culminates in the God who gives his son to love others as he would himself. So all of that list, it sheds new light on that list that we read earlier. When Paul says jealousy and fits of rage and sexual expression that doesn't respect the potency and the creative power of sex and people, perpetual drunkenness, envy, selfish ambition, divisions, all of these are destructive to loving one another as you would yourself. All of these tear people down. They do not lead toward wholeness and completeness and abundance, a.k.a. they do not lead toward God. So I'm telling you, like Paul says, as I told you before, the kingdom of God is perfect wholeness. Those who continue to tear each other down, they won't inherit the kingdom, not subjectively, not like I'm gonna be so angry at them, I'm not gonna let them in. No, objectively, they're making their own decisions. They are disqualifying themselves from the kingdom. So if we put all this together, consider this metaphor. And Jay and I didn't talk beforehand, so I had no idea he was gonna reference Exodus in the mountain. Consider a mountain. And all of us, you and I, we're at the bottom of the mountain and God is at the top, the ideal. And our spiritual journeys is a mountain and we're, we're all looking to close the gap. We're all looking to achieve that abundance and that wholeness and that rest which we feel like our heart should have, right? But we don't have. And how do we close the gap? How do we, AKA, recover the world? True holiness is the recovery of the world. How do we recover it? Well, everyone has an answer. And just so you know, if you're here in the room and you're not, you wouldn't call yourself religious, you're not uh, you know, a follower of God, you are religious. David Foster Wallace in a brilliant essay talks about everyone worships. Everyone worships. The only choice you get is what to worship because every day we step outside our doors and we attempt to ascribe meaning to our existence. And so we're looking at things to close the gap, to, to make meaning for our lives. So some of us attempt to close the gap through religion. Some of us attempt it through work. Some of us attempt it through our families, our marriages, our children, our career, but we're all doing the same thing. We see wholeness and abundance out there, or we think it should be ours, but we're not experiencing it. And so we are 
looking at something, we're engaging in practices, engaging in ways of thinking that should close the gap, that maybe once we get that or do that, that will give meaning, that will bring rest and abundance and wholeness. We're all doing it. And some of us do it through religion. Some of us say, if I do these practices, if I do these prayers or whatever, that will get me to this place. Other of us in New York, we do it through our work and our careers. Say, if I engage in this way, if I forfeit, because there are sacrifices, if I forfeit, you know, a life and work 80 hours, I'll get to a place that will be at the top of the mountain. I'll climb the mountain. I'll reach abundance and wholeness. We're all doing it. In the biblical narrative, the holy life is a way of closing the gap. And it's usually attached to morality, our morals, our values, our behaviors, our way of life, that when we enter into, when we practice, results in the closing of the gap between God and us. But holiness is not arbitrary. That's something we need to get clear. When you read in the stories of God's people, we're saying, hey, avoid these behaviors. It's not when they ask, well, why? Well, because I told you so. No. The reason why we say avoid these behaviors is because whether you can see it or not, whether it makes sense or not, it is destroying you. It is destructive to the life of God growing inside of you. It is destructive to us being able to love our neighbor as ourself. So this holy way of life we read about is attempting to tell us how to not fall short of the ideal, how to climb the mountain. But here's something, guys, and you need to hear this. This is, this is super important. It never works. <laughs> it never works. This holy way of life, this climbing the mountain, whether through religion or through work or through families or through relationships, it's never over. And you realize there's an asymptote. There's an infinite chasm. You feel like you're making strides and then something happens and you realize, oh my gosh, the gap is still huge. I cannot get there. You never close the gap fully, which is why the story doesn't end with the people of Israel. But it comes to this defining moment where we're told in John's gospel, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. See, this is what is unique. And just so you know, this is unique. And the, the, the story of Jesus is unique from any other story, whether it be another religious story or it be a story of work. It doesn't even matter. This is the unique story. Because what we are saying, to use that metaphor of the mountain with the gap, all of our lives, every day we make decisions that are attempting to climb up the, mat, uh, the mountain. And what we're saying in Jesus is the ideal one, God, perfect abundance, perfect completeness, wholeness, rather than us climbing to him, he comes down to us. That is who Jesus is. Jesus bridges the gap between complete and full abundance of life, God, and the fallen, broken, missing the mark world, all of us. And every religion, every philosophy, whether you're agnostic, whether you're atheist, whether you're secular, whether you're consumerist, whether we're just plain you know, Western and we buy the vision of if we consume more, then we'll reach the good life. It is all a way of trying to find meaning for our lives. 
a way to climb the mountain. But what we see in the gospel of Jesus, when we say the word became flesh and dwelled among us, is Jesus is saying, hey, you don't have to climb. You don't have to climb the mountain. Right where you are today, this very moment in your incompleteness, you are loved and you are with me. I have bridged the gap. You don't have to do a thing, but just come to the table. The table is open. It costs nothing. A ball is being thrown and you're all invited. What are the conditions for invitation? Because you were created by God. That is grace. You are accepted right as you are. Or Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Why did he set us free? So that we could climb the mountain? No, for freedom. Because humans are designed to be free. The world is designed to be free. It is for freedom. Jesus is the ultimate saint. (laughs) Jesus is the ultimate holy one. He's the ultimate set apart one. He, in his life, is the embodiment of true holiness. And what's so compelling, and think about this, think about this, wherever you are in the spiritual journey, what's so compelling about Jesus is that his life demonstrates a fullness, not a lack, a fullness that is not present in my life. His life demonstrates an abundance of knowledge, an abundance, like an overflowing of power, a fearlessness toward anyone, a compassion toward everyone. He does not seem to be living a less human existence and other religious traditions have all said the same. He seems to be the ultimate saint. No one can accuse Jesus of being a moral prude. No one can accuse Jesus of being self-righteous. Yet when we read his story, when we consider his life, he fills us with all because he does live according to a restrictive way. He wakes up early and he goes to pray on the mountainside. He fasts for 40 days before entering into ministry. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill it. And the world kills Jesus, not because he lives a subhuman life or because he's some moral prude, but because he seems more alive and more free than anyone else. And that's scary. What do we see when we look at Jesus, friends? We see the ideal human. The ideal human in the sense that we've been describing it. We see the human who has not missed the mark. We see the human life perfectly united with complete abundance, complete wholeness. Perfectly united with the Spirit of God. So Paul says, so I say, walk by the Spirit. Listen to the Spirit. When you want to curse someone, when that's your natural instinct, but something says, don't do it. Listen, and instead bless, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Jesus walked by the Spirit, and he demonstrated the fruits of the Spirit. He was the ideal human. Now, here's my aversion to that word holy, and I kind of already alluded to it. I grew up in a church that talked about holiness a lot. It talked about it the way any other religion would. It said, you know, any other, any other human would. This is about your behaviors, primarily your personal piety, let's be real. Uh, it sort of skips over the whole, you know, you interacting with others. It was more about how I treated my own self, my own body. It talked about my, my choices of language, my sexual expression, my outward displays of squeaky cleanness. 
but it, it felt like we were all measuring ourselves against one another. And, and it, I realized that the more I tried to do all these things, the worse I felt about myself. There were promises of abundant life, and these were the behaviors that were supposed to get me there, but I felt stifled and suffocating. And what made it so confusing is it was all done throwing Jesus' name about. Like, like Jesus, he came and he did his thing, but he was now back at the top of the mountain, and I still had to climb toward him. I was still supposed to close the gap between me and God, between the ideal and where I thought, uh, where I should be, and that was supposed to be through my own strength and my own power. I pursued a holy life because that would bring me God's grace and favor and love, and I couldn't do it because you can't, <laughs> because that's a lie, and that totally misrepresents who Jesus is. And so I walked away. I just sort of said, you know, to heck with it. This is so suffocating. And I joined a long list of a lot of people who have done that. <laughs> and I lived my own life because I thought holiness was how I earned God's love. And I climbed the mountain to that end. And after a period of time, God started revealing himself to me again. He started speaking. And his words, I expected his words to be very angry words because I was not living a sort of life that I was taught would make him happy. And rather, his words to me were overflowing with joy and love. It's like, oh man, Russ, it's so good to talk with you again. I just want you to know where you are right now. And I, know, I knew where I was and I did not like where I was. But he's like, I just want you to know that I love you right here without changing a thing about yourself. Right here, you make my heart swell with delight. And that was so intoxicating that I just stayed there. I focused on the grace of God because, friends, that is true. Wherever you are today, whatever you think, however life you're living, whatever ideal you feel like you're missing the mark of, God is looking at you and saying, I am overjoyed with you. Oh, man, I am so happy you're alive. That is true. You were called to be free for freedom. That's it. But then over a period of time, he brought that next line to my memory. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather serve one another humbly in love. See, over the last, I don't know, two to three years, I've become increasingly uncomfortable. I've had many conversations with many of you, many others, in my own prayers, in my own conversations with God. People who are followers of Jesus, people who are not. And there's a similar theme. There's an experience of spiritual dryness. There's an experience of discomfort. There's a, a lacking of abundant life that is promised to be ours. And it's promised to be ours not because we have to do anything to earn it, because Jesus is all of it. He is the Holy One who has bridged the gap. He is here. And in relationship with him, we can experience that abundant life. That is true. And, but no one seems to be experiencing it. And I was praying. I've been praying for the last couple of years. And like, Lord, why don't I feel it? Why don't your followers experience it? Where is your grace? And the word he keeps bringing back to me, not with condemnation, but with joy and almost laughter, is holiness. Lord, why don't I experience abundant life? Holiness. 
Where, where is, you know, where is this, 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 this completeness that you promise, this easy yoke, this easy burden, holiness? What does that mean? Josh uh, preached a great message last week and he quoted Richard Rohr and I think this gets at it precisely. Richard Rohr writes, we cannot obtain the presence of God. We're already totally in the presence of God. What's absent is awareness. See, the story of Jesus is that the mountain doesn't have to be climbed through anything, through any religious story, uh, through any, through any um, like work, family, any of those ways that we try to make meaning for our lives, to climb the mountain, to reach the ideal. We don't have to. The story is that God, the ideal, has entered into time, has come to the bottom of the mountain, and now his presence is everywhere. The kingdom of God is everywhere. The power that filled Jesus, the abundance, filled his disciples, and we saw it in the book of Acts. And it fills us, it can fill us, it's everywhere. It's not about the presence of God. What's lacking is our awareness of his presence. You don't have to climb the mountain to get to God. God has already closed the gap. In Jesus, God is everywhere. That's grace. But if you're asking me why your life feels no different, if you're asking me why it seems to lack power and lack abundance, it's because you're not aware of his presence. And if you wanna know how to become aware of his presence, not dealing with his love for you, that's set in stone. But how to become aware of his presence That comes from that word, holiness. One scholar wrote, the question of forming habits on the basis of the grace of God is a very vital one. To ignore it is to fall into the snare of the Pharisee. The grace of God is praise, Jesus Christ is praise, the redemption is praise, but the practical everyday life evades working it out. If we refuse to practice, it is not God's grace that fails when a crisis comes, but our own nature. When the crisis comes, we ask God to help us, but he cannot if we have not made our nature our ally. The practicing is ours, not God's. God regenerates us and puts us in contact with all his divine resources, but he cannot make us walk according to his will. A shorthand way of saying that in another letter, Paul writes, work out what God has already worked in you. Grace is yours. Abundant life is yours through Jesus. You see him. The human ideal is yours now begin to step into that life. The kingdom is here, but awareness of the kingdom takes a holy life and not to earn the kingdom, but to receive it. So this spiritual journey we're on is is like a relationship with the Holy One, the ultimate saint, who by so relating reflects his holiness onto us. So I say, walk with the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Another, a modern way of putting that, have a healthy relationship with Jesus and you will experience abundant life. You'll begin to take on those characteristics of the human being perfectly united with complete abundance. And think about that analogy of a healthy relationship. That's a good way of thinking through this. Healthy relationships have practices, don't they? They have restrictions. They have ways of thinking, habits of behavior, like honest communication. Do you think you can have a healthy relationship without being honest with your partner? I can tell when Anna and I are not doing well. We will get into a room and we'll start talking and we'll realize, oh my gosh, we haven't talked in a while. Quality time. We can't have a healthy relationship without making time to talk together. 
We can't have a healthy relationship without lines of faithfulness that we know that, hey, these behaviors and these ways of thinking, this is faithful and this is, this is good. Outside of this, this now becomes unfaithful. This becomes destructive to our relationship and to you and to me. So, and some of these behaviors will feel restrictive, like when I want to go out with the guys or something, but now I text her and ask her and let her know, I don't want to do that. I don't want to ask her. I want to be my own person. But no, I have submitted myself to her for the sake of our relationship. Friends, I want to say that if you're feeling dry and hopeless today, with all the love in my heart, it's because you don't have a healthy relationship with Jesus. And here's the whole catch-22 of the whole thing. You don't have to. You don't have to. And you are loved and you are accepted and you don't change what he thinks about you in the slightest. The table is open today. The table will be open tomorrow. And no matter what you do, no matter what choices you make in your life, the table will never be disqualified for you. You are always welcome to the table. You don't have to. You cannot lose his love. But if you want to receive the abundant life, he promises the only way to become aware of his presence is through holiness. And if Jesus is the ideal human, the complete human, the not missing the mark human, then by relating with him in a healthy way, he begins to reflect his holiness onto us. And so there are steps in that, right? It's got to start with an exclusive commitment, doesn't it? Like in order to have a healthy relationship, I can't be, um, you know, open with others. I need to be exclusive with Jesus. So that will start with putting restrictions in of I am in relationship with you, Jesus, like I'm in relationship with no other. And then it'll move along and, and then you'll step into marriage. And marriage is baptism. When you step into the waters and say, I'm going to bind this together. Now we are one for the rest of time. And then it moves to actually being married, which has seasons of healthy practices, does it not? Where we're learning how to relate with one another. We're learning how to put each other first. And it's, it, I need to be very clear here. Like I said earlier, holiness is not just sacrifice. It's not just refusing certain things. It's also picking up new practices like solitude and worship and community and prayer. And we're actually going to talk about those next year. But it has to start, the purpose of today is it has to start with that exclusive commitment. It has to start with a level of restrictions of things that feel quite natural. And it starts and sustained through exclusive commitment. And Paul says, I don't know if you caught that in this passage, the works of the flesh versus the fruits of the spirit. The works of the flesh are quite natural. They come out, they're visible. But when we start cutting them off, like a bush, when we start restricting, that makes room for fruits to be grown inside of us. We don't do the fruits. We don't sort of, you know, take them and put them in. When we step into a new way of life, a new way of thinking, a set-apart existence, they begin to grow inside. I want to invite the band back up. I just want to end with this. If you're not experiencing the abundant life, the love, the joy, 
the peace that comes from relationship with Jesus. It's not because God is absent and it's not because he doesn't love you. It's not because his grace isn't everywhere. It's rather because your way of life, your habits of thinking, your behaviors are stifling the fruit of the spirit from growing with them. You've abandoned a way of life or have never begun one that walks with the spirit. I love the way Chesterton puts it. He says, Christianity has not so much been tried and found wanting as it has been found difficult and never tried. That's it for all of us. It's not that we've actually tried it and said it's, it's wanting. We look at it, we look at the saints, we look at cer- certain ways they live their life and we say, man, that's, that seems super restrictive. It's been found difficult and therefore never tried. And that's okay, you don't have to. And you are loved and accepted right as you are. Welcome to his table, there is grace. But if you are burdened, if you do feel weary today, if you want to say, come to the end of your, yourself and say, I want to start pruning, step into a way of life that he promises with Jesus, not to earn his love, not to, not to um, receive his love, but to just be with him because you already are experiencing the grace that pours from his story. If you want that type of abundant life, that comes from steps. Well, what does that mean? Well, Paul ends and says, well, if we live by the Spirit, let us be guided by the Spirit. So I want to invite everyone in here, just close your eyes. If the Spirit is in us, If the presence of God is everywhere as we're promised it is in Christ, that when we look at Jesus, we see the ideal human, the human that is not missing the mark, then God wants to speak to us right now. God wants to reveal his nature and his name. He wants to build that healthy relationship with us right now. And I've found in my experience that the way God does that is he gives little steps. He doesn't tell us multiple things. He just says this one thing. And so right now, Holy Spirit, we quiet our hearts and we ask that you bring to mind one thing that you want us to let go of. One thing, one step of faith. For some of us, it might be putting our faith in you finally, making an exclusive commitment to you. For some of us, it might be getting baptized, making it official. For others of us, we've been, in, we've been engaging in, in ways of thinking. We've had bitterness or, or we've been prioritizing uh, other things, other relationships, other jobs and we haven't been prioritizing time with you. Maybe you want us to give up a certain amount of time in the morning and spend time with you. Maybe there's a relationship that needs to be cut off. And it feels super painful when you bring these things up, God. Because we don't want to, we know it's gonna hurt. There's gonna be death. Some of these things are really close to our identity. 
And we don't know who we're gonna be if we give that up. But you promise that the fruits that will grow inside of us will make us so aware of your presence, so aware of your love, so aware and full of life that people might look at us and say, man, they are a saint. We don't wanna do it for, for that sake, but we wanna do it because we're thirsty and we're tired and we're lonely and we just wanna try. So speak and we will obey. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.